All right, it's great to be with you. I want to just say something, and it's going to tie in with our study of the book of Revelation. You may have been wondering, I wonder why Pastor Kuhlman does a lot of the Sunday school openings with the question, who is Jesus, and then the meaning from the small catechism. Well, there are a number of reasons. Number one, as our study of the book of Revelation shows, Jesus truly is God, and he's the God-man who suffered on the cross, died for us and for our salvation, and who now reigns over everything for the sake of his church. The second thing is this, is when, when, I, uh, when I teach youth catechesis, and even when I teach adult catechesis, one of my normal assignments that I give to the kids or the adults is <clears throat> ask somebody you know, not a member of this church, but ask somebody you know if they believe in God. And if they say yes, then the biggest question is which one? To find out what kind of an answer they give. Now the answer we're looking for is I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God. And then secondly, what do you believe about Jesus? Now here's, here's where a lot of Christians, including LCMSers, can't answer that one. So this is my answer to the question, why do we spend so much time on this? Who is Jesus and what do we believe? Because most Christians, including those in the Missouri Senate, if you ask them, who is Jesus, they can't tell you. They might say, nice guy. He lived a really good life. He taught us that we should be loving. But see, that's not the Savior. Jesus is true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary. And he's my Lord who redeemed me, a lost and condemned person. And then you notice the verbs in the small catechism. It's Jesus doing all the verbs. Purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil. And how did he do it? Well, with his holy, precious blood, his innocent suffering and death. So those two things, who is God and what do you believe about Jesus, is what distinctively makes you a Christian. So if, if you're dealing with somebody who can't say, well, I, I believe in God, and you ask, well, which one? And they say, well, God. No, I asked you which one? God. No, which one? God. They're either an immature Christian who need to be taught, or they're not Christian at all. So the answer is, I believe in God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we learn the creeds, because the creeds faithfully give us the biblical teaching of who God is and what he's done. So there's always this, just another side note, a lot of Christians today, when, when Christians... When we confess the creeds, a lot of Christians in the United States will say, well, you shouldn't, you shouldn't confess that. That's just man-made. Well, you have to say, yeah, that's true. The creed was written by men. That's correct. But it does faithfully confess what the Bible teaches. Now, you don't have a problem with that, do you? You understand that, don't you? The creed never replaces the scriptures. But the creed faithfully teaches what the scriptures teach. I don't have the Bible memorized. You may think I do, but I don't. I know you don't. If I don't, you don't. I know you don't, except for Ron. Ron's about the only one that comes close. <laughs> so um, the creeds give us an easy way to know what the scriptures are talking about faithfully. All right, enough on that. Now, so Revelation, Jesus is Lord. Revelation 5, Revelation 4 and 5, we saw the Father reigning. Revelation 4, Revelation 5, we saw Jesus the lamb who has been slain, but now who reigns at the side of his father over everything for the sake of his church. Then we looked at Revelation 6 last week, you remember? And we tied it in with what Jesus said in Matthew 24. All right, let me back this bus up a little bit more. So moving forward now in Revelation, you have seven seals. 
that are opened. You know, seals are those things like the wax that's put on a document and the king puts his seal on it, okay, in the ancient world. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of incense, if you will, or censers, okay? And each, each vision, the vision of the seals, trumpets, and, and uh, bowls of incense, they all talk about the same history. And again, I'm doing this by way of review. The history is from the time of our Lord's first coming till his time in judgment on the last day. So in Revelation 6, we had pictured with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, if you will, the very things that Jesus teaches in Matthew 24. What things will take place in between his first and second coming? False prophets, false teaching, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines, nation against nation. And what was the other one? The church will suffer. Christians will suffer. So we're studying now the seals. We did that last week in Revelation 6. So if you got that open, let me catch up with you. Revelation 6 ended with the last day judgment talk, if you will. So look at verse 12. Sixth seal is open. Revelation 6, 12. Again, I'm doing this by way of review to set up now our study in Revelation 7. I watched, John says, as he opened the sixth seal, great earthquake. Jesus said that's going to happen at the end. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to the earth as late figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. That's the last day description. These are last day events. So again, the opening of the seals describes the time between Christ's first coming and his second coming. This describes second coming events. So there will be a last day. Let me continue to read this and then I want to make another quick comment. Verse 15, Revelation 6, 15. The kings of the earth, and by the way, this is important because these people that are described first here in this verse think they're in control of everything. They think they are lords and divinities on the earth. So the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, these are the ones, and they're listed first on purpose, again, because they think they're in charge of everything. And guess what, folks? These people in general don't believe what's going to happen in the future. What don't they, what don't they believe? That, that, yeah, that Christ is risen from the dead, but what's going to happen at the end of time? There's going to be a judgment of the living and the dead by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going to stress this. This is huge. You test me out on this. If you know people who do not believe or deny that there will be a judgment day, they live a certain way. <laughs> they think they're in charge. Make sense? You test me out on that. If you have unbelieving friends or family members, you ask them, do you believe that Jesus will return on the last day to judge the living and the dead? And if they say no, then you say, how does that inform your life? And basically, if they give you an answer, they'll say, I can do anything I want. I'm in charge. Now, they may answer it differently, but that will be the main point of their answer. Okay. Now, the other people that are mentioned are slave and every free man. What do they do? They hide in caves among the rocks and mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks. Fall. They'd rather have an avalanche fall on them rather than face the Lord Jesus Christ on the last day. And hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne 
and from the wrath of the Lamb, that be God the Father and Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Judgment day. Yes, please. Well, when the last when the last day comes, yeah, they're going to run, just like Adam and Eve did. Just like Adam and Eve, when they believed the satanic lie that you shall be as God, you'll say what's good, you'll say what's evil. You don't need to trust God; He's a liar. You're God. And then God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what do Adam and Eve do immediately? They run and hide in the bushes. And by the way, they're not having a second honeymoon in the bushes. See, when, when, when sinners face God, they run. Makes sense? So, yeah. Yes? So, in the beginning of Revelation, when John is introduced to the Lamb or Jesus, he falls down dead. Right. In the presence of a holy God. Right. 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 So, that's a, that's a double-edged sword. Holy God who can cut off your head and send you to hell. But on the other hand, the other part of that is... He died for me, and I'm good. So that's why you remember the Bible teaches that the fear of the Lord is the beginning. That's John in Revelation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? That's right. Why is that wise? I'll tell you why. Again, this, this fits in, I think, with how I've started our study today. If you, if you fear men more than God, if you fear a coach more than God, if you fear a team more than God, Fill in the blank. If you fear, fill in the blank more than God, that informs how you live, doesn't it? I fear, I fear a lot of things more than God, and it, it impacts how I live. I'm no better, okay? So don't, don't hear what I'm saying. There. Oh, Kuhlman thinks he's so... No, I'm not, okay? But again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom because when you fear God more than fill in the blank, that will inform how you live. That's John. Then you are to trust, the Bible teaches you are to trust in him and you are to love him. All three of those verbs are taught in the scriptures. Fear, love, and trust. All three go together. But unbelievers do none of the three. Now, keep your finger here in Revelation and go to Romans 13. I'm, this, Paul, Paul, is, Paul preaches this better than I just did. <laughs> Romans 13. So we're going to start at verse 8. Romans 13, starting at verse 8. Now the clincher here is this. I'm going to paraphrase it before we read it. If you know there's going to be a last day judgment, this will inform how you will live as a Christian. All right, let's go. Verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. The commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. Now that isn't for salvation. Paul means this, if you've read Romans, you know that faith alone in Jesus is what saves you. But if you're a faither, you're a lover. Faith gives birth to love. And so believers then trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and then want to be used as the Lord's instrument to love other people for the sake of simply the neighbor. And by doing that, you fulfill the commandments. 
Not for salvation, but simply for the sake of loving the neighbor. Now let's keep going. Verse 11. And Paul says, do this, loving the neighbor. Do this, understanding what? The present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. This is judgment day talk. There's going to be a judgment day. Now verse, the end of verse 12. So then, let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now, again, before we finish this, if you believe there's going to be a last day judgment, how do you live? Let's continue. Verse 13. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. How do you spell that in the Bible? F-A-I-T-H. And do not think how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So the Christian then, knowing that there will be a last day judgment, will fight against his or her sinful cravings and desires and will want to live accordingly. Faith in Jesus, love for the sake of the other people in your life. Make sense? People who don't believe there's going to be a judgment day, they don't give a rip about you. <laughs> they don't care about you unless they can use you for their own advantages and wealth. <laughs> That's not a joke, even though I was snickering. I'm going to say that again. Unbelievers, <laughs> they will show, quote, air quotes now, love you only if they can use you for their own purposes, to push an agenda or whatever that may be. Any questions about what I've just covered here? Yes, please, Mike. love your neighbor, but there's a lot of strife around the world where these people aren't really loving each other. Correct. So then those become like basically unbelievers, is that what you're saying? Well, the unbelievers aren't going to do that. So they'll they'll talk a lot about love. Again, I'm going to make this point. I hope this is clear. Unbelievers talk a lot about love, but they don't love you. They love themselves. So this, this is just simply a scam. We love the children. Always the children. We love, oh, we want to do this for the children. Really? Follow this and you'll find out if they love the children. In any event, I hope I answered your concern. Yeah, I'm just kind of concerned about what's going on in, this, in the right now. With a lot of the, the whole world with a lot of turmoil and it's supposed to be love your neighbor. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is why God has, this is why Jesus has a church. This is why the church is described in the Bible as the body of Christ. The new humanity on the earth is not the Marxist classless society. The new humanity on the earth is the church, whereby Jesus reigns. He reigns in his church for the sake of using the church to convert people to, to him and then using the church to help people regardless of their believers or unbelievers. It was the church who took care of the orphans in the original church. It was the church who took care of the widows. The unbelievers didn't. There were no senior citizen homes in the Roman Empire. It was the church who built hospitals, etc. Yeah. All right, enough on that. Now back to Revelation 6. So there's going to be a last day, and who will be able to stand? Well, what's the answer? Who's going to be able to stand on Judgment Day and be safe? That's right, believers. 
Now, as we, as we continue our study of Revelation, I have to say this too. As we, as we read further on about the trumpets and the bowls, all of these plagues and all of these judgments we're going to hear about that are going to take place on the earth are for the sake of one thing and one thing only. For people to repent, believe, and live differently. Now, in the book of Revelation, unbelievers are described in this phrase. You're going to see it over and over again. The inhabitants of the earth. Watch this now. So just keep that in mind. Now, who will be able to stand? Keep your finger. I can't help myself. Keep your finger here in Revelation. And now let's go to the Old Testament. Go to a prophet that you've probably never read before. Go to Nahum. Nahum in the Old Testament. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, and then you're really getting close. Nahum. Now, if, if this is just one verse we're going to read, this is Nahum chapter 1, verse 6. Now, what, what am I doing here? Here's what I'm doing. Revelation 6 ends with this question. Who will be able to stand? Namely, when judgment day comes. Guess what? This is what the Old Testament prophets have asked all the time. When the Lord comes in judgment, who will be able to stand? So if you're there in Nahum chapter 1, look at verse 6. Who can withstand his, namely God's indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. One other comment. There's a biblical distinction you have to keep in mind when we read these passages. Namely, the wrath of God. His anger. When you are apart from Christ. Namely, if you are an unfaither. Then when you face God the Father, how will he treat you? With his wrath. But if you are in Christ and you're a faither, when you face God, it will not be in wrath. Why not? Because Jesus took God the Father's wrath for all your sin and all of its damnation here. So again, repeat, the biblical distinction is this. If you are apart from Christ, an unbeliever, on the last day, you will face God's wrath. Because you purposely chose to live apart from Christ. And God will give you what you want as your punishment. He doesn't want that. Keep that in mind. First Timothy, God wants all to be saved and come to the knowledge of the... That's First Timothy 2. So God doesn't want people to not believe and go to hell. But if you insist on it over Christ's dead body, he'll give you what you want as your punishment. That's Romans 1 again. Go to one other passage in the, New, in the Old Testament, Malachi. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. Chapter 3, I believe it is. Verse 2. Yeah, verse 2. Again, this fits with Revelation 6. Malachi 3, 2 says, or asks the question, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And so Revelation 6 asks the very same question. And now Revelation 7. The answer is given. And it's given in two ways. 
144,000, and then another group of people, well, the same group of people, but described as innumerable. Now, let me say one more thing about this before we read Revelation 7. The first verses that talk about the 144,000 describes the church on earth who will be able to stand. And then the last part of Revelation 7 gives us a picture of the church in heaven. All right? So church on earth, and there's only one church, by the way. I hope, I hope I didn't give you the wrong impression that there's two churches, one on earth and one in heaven, thus two. No, there's only one. <laughs> one church, okay? And Revelation 7 describes it's the church who will be able to stand. So you ready? Let's go. This is going to be a ton of fun. <clears throat> After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or the sea or on any tree. So this has to do with things on earth. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, I've got to back something up. If you remember uh, earlier, which we studied in Revelation 6, how, much was, how many people were hurt or how many things were hurt with these things? It was a quarter, a quarter. But as we're going to move on with trumpets and seals, it's going to be greater devastation from a quarter to a third. And this is, this is the, the Bible's way of teaching that when the judgments of God come upon the earth, it's going to get worse and worse and worse. Think, think it looks like that today? Yeah? Yeah. Are we living in the last days? Yeah. Of course we are. And things are going to get worse and worse and worse right before Christ comes on the last day. But don't despair because the Lord has his church and you will be able to stand. And now notice... One of the reasons they will be able to stand is because, look again at verse 3. They have a seal put on them. If you, know your, if you know your New Testament, seal is huge. So, for example, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Keep your finger in Revelation and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 22. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22. I'll take a swig here while you're looking that up. We're talking again. So Revelation 7. Who will be able to stand on Judgment Day? People who have been sealed. Now it says on their foreheads. More on that in a moment. But now let's just talk about the sealing. The Bible speaks of this in two ways. Are you there? I'm going to read it. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. So Jesus has anointed us and put his seal on us, and that's the Holy Spirit. Now, where were you sealed with the Holy Spirit? Baptism would be one, or you could say, well, pastor, I, I became a believer first and then I was baptized. You could say both. When you came to faith through the preaching of the gospel and in baptism. So, for example, you all know Matthew 28. You're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the... So when you're baptized in that name, you are also sealed then with the Holy Spirit. Are you good then? 
Yeah, yeah. Let's read another passage. Go to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1. While you're looking up Ephesians 1, I can't help myself. So are you full of the Holy Spirit? What's the answer? Yes. Not as you look at yourself. Remember my distinctions? While you're looking up Ephesians 1, there's this problem. You can always distinguish when things go wrong. Intranos literally means inside us. Inside us. This is subjectivity. In other words, am I full of the Holy Spirit and you look to yourself? If I'm quite honest with myself, I can't say, I can't say that. Because if you've golfed with me, you know that when I hit a bad shot, you'll say, he's not full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> or, you know, when I have a discussion with my wife and there's a disagreement, and you observe that, he ain't full of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> there was her hand. I was just vouching that we golf like that. Yeah, that's right. We, we, yeah, we're both the same. We're so competitive. Again, when the question is asked, are you full of the Holy Spirit? Are you possessed by the Holy Spirit? If you look to yourself, you say, I, you can't be honest. If you're honest, you say, I'm not. But when you look extra notes outside of us to an objective, this is objectivity. When you look at God's word and God's gifts that he's given you, then you can say, I am. And one is baptism. Are you in Ephesians? Let me read it. Verse 13. Ephesians 1, 13. Having believed, you were marked <coughs> in him, namely Jesus, with a seal. And who's the seal? The promised Holy Spirit. Now, i got to say something else here, too. When the Holy Spirit gives himself to you, like in baptism... I'm going to repeat this. This is very important. I hope you're listening. When the Holy Spirit gives himself to you, you do not possess the Holy Spirit as ownership. In other words, you don't own the Holy Spirit. He gives himself to you, and he continually gives himself to you in the gospel and the many ways the gospel is given, like in absolution, preaching the gospel, Lord's Supper. So the Holy Spirit is always gift in which he's constantly giving himself to you in the gospel. You never own the Holy Spirit. That's huge. Because the Holy Spirit is the third person in Trinity, God. No, God possesses you. I got another passage. Let's go to Ephesians 4, verse 30, since we're there. Ephesians 4, 30. And again, while you're looking this up, why are we doing this? Because in Revelation 7, those who will stand on the last day have been sealed. Got it? Ephesians 4, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's the way of talking about the last day. The last day, day of redemption. In other words, the day of redemption is the last day in this sense that you will see with your eyes and experience with all of your senses what you've been promised all your life. You know, like the resurrection of the body. I, you know, I don't know about you, but, you know, Recently, we had a huge funeral down the road here this, this week, right? Closed casket. And uh, all these promises of God, the resurrection of the, really, that body that was so, that body of Mike's that was so, you know what I'm trying to say? If you only judge by what you see and how you feel, well, 
But we have a promise. We've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And the Holy Spirit will raise that body from the dead. Remember, this is interesting. I don't know if you've, if you've wondered about this. So I'm going to spell this out to you. So you never know what you're going to get with me. When we say the Apostles' Creed, the third article, say it with me, the third article. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, communion of saints, forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, Alright, so we believe in the Holy Spirit and where He works. The Holy Christian Church. What does He do? He creates a communion of believers, saints, holy ones. And how does He do it? Through the forgiveness of sins. And then what is the long-term benefit of the forgiveness of sins? Resurrection of the body and life everlasting. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Who will be able to stand on the last day? Those who have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down here? So if you're a believer, you're good on the last day. Now let's finish this thought. Go back to Revelation 7. They have been sealed where? On their foreheads. Holy smokes. Go to Ezekiel chapter 9 in the Old Testament now. Ezekiel chapter 9. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, then you're getting close. While you're looking up Ezekiel 9, and we're going to read verse 4, Israel's going to be judged. Okay, and who will be able to stand when God judges Israel? And this, and this of yes, believers. But they're going to be marked with something. Oh! Alright? So again, the context here of Ezekiel. Israel is going to be judged by the Lord for her idolatry and unbelief. But there is a remnant of believers, and they will be able to stand God's judgment and be safe. So for the sake of time, look at verse 4. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem. This is Ezekiel 9, verse 4. Go throughout the city of Jerusalem and put a, now look at this, put a mark on their, where? Their foreheads of those who grieve and lament over the detestable things that are done, in, namely the idolatry that was done in Jerusalem. They're put they're a mark on their foreheads. And if you continue to read Ezekiel, we don't have time. But here's what the mark looks like. I'm going to write it on the board. That was the mark. The Hebrew T or Tau that looks like a cross. Ooh, those are the people who will be able to stand. So again, keeping it. I taught you something last week. Do you remember what, what's one of the biggest rules of interpreting the Bible? Scripture. Yeah, Scripture interprets Scripture. And the, the clear passages override the unclear. Well, they help us understand the unclear, right? Yeah. And here's an example of this. When you read Revelation 7 and you are told that the people who will be able to stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and not be sent to hell... It's people who are marked with a seal on their foreheads, just like in the Old Testament. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Israel, the believers were given a mark on their foreheads that looked like a cross. Now, I can't help myself. You know where I'm going next, don't you? Well, good grief. Of course you do. But I'm going to say it anyway. So you all know that in the small... Now, you, I'm not saying you have to do this. Don't misunderstand me here. But I want you to understand why, if Christians do this, understand why. When you are baptized, you receive a mark. What is the mark? Whether you're an adult or child, 
receive the sign of the Holy Cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart to mark you as one redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been tattooed with the cross on your forehead and your heart. That's all on purpose because this in Revelation 7 is the same thing. The ones who are marked have a baptismal mark on their heads and it is baptism, the sign of the cross. So if you see Christians making the sign, sometimes Kuhlman does it this way. I don't know if you watch Kuhlman up front or not. <laughs> the kids do. The kids are always watching Kuhlman. And they always say, Pastor, what are you doing when you do this? I'm making the sign of the cross. Because I've been baptized under that sign. I've, I've been tattooed and branded. I've been sealed. Okay. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down here? Now again, don't misunderstand. Do you have to do that? No. You've already been marked in baptism. See? But if Christians do that, now you understand why. Okay? Unless, of course, you're like a, like a Major League Baseball player and he gets up to bat and he's constantly doing this. I don't think they have a clue. <laughs> so where the Holy Spirit is, back to Revelation 7, where the Holy Spirit is, Christ then is there with his people and also Christ's promise is there and that's very important. Okay, now let's continue. Verse 4, I hear a number. Isn't that interesting? I hear a number. I, Mrs. Kuhlman, you're a math teacher. I'm going to ask this question. When you teach math, do the children hear a number or see a number? Both, I hope. Both, okay. It's interesting. They don't, he doesn't say see here. They hear. Hear a number. That's important. Faith comes by? Hearing. Hearing is important. So he hears a number of those who are sealed. And what's the number? 144,000. Now again, this is not a literal number. The book of Revelation uses symbols to make points. And so the numbers are symbols. For example, 10 commandments. 10 is the number of completeness. God's complete will for your life before him and before others. When God judged Pharaoh and all of Egypt uh, with their unbelief, remember Moses and Aaron? How did God judge Pharaoh's unbelief? I can't help it. Remember when God sent Moses to speak to Pharaoh and Moses, I'm going to paraphrase, Moses said to Pharaoh, God says, let my people go so that they may worship me on a mountain. And of course, that's Mount Sinai. You remember what was Pharaoh's response? And it wasn't nice. It wasn't tongue in cheek. It was meant to cut and to harm. Pharaoh said, who is God that I should let these people go? Because Pharaoh thought he was God. And so, because of Pharaoh's continual unbelief, God sent how many plagues? Ten, baby. Ten plagues. God's complete judgment against Pharaoh and his unbelief. So numbers always symbolize things, and now similarly here. So let's read the rest of the verses, and then we'll, we'll unpack the number 144,000. Now, if you know your 12 tribes of Israel here, you may be perplexed. I'll say more about that in a minute. They're from the tribes of Israel. Tribe of Judah, 12,000. Now, of course, the Messiah came from the tribe of Judah, you remember? From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. Uh, does that uh, send up a red flag? There was no tribe of Levi. Interesting. I'm just pointing this out here, okay? From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of, there were, by the way, there were Levites. But there was no tribe of Levite. That's okay. 
Tribe of Joseph, 12,000. Benjamin, 12,000. Okay. So what's going on here with 144,000 from the tribes of Israel? What's going on here? Okay, let's do our math. 12 tribes. That's God's Old Testament church, right? Just like in the New Testament, he has 12 apostles. 12 tribes, 12 apostles. That's why we speak of the apostolic church. The church is Paul teaches this in Ephesians. The church is built on the prophets and the apostles. Basically what they taught. What they taught. Not who they are, but what they taught. All right, so what's going on here? We have the number 10, the number of completeness, <coughs> times the number 12. To what degree? So we have 12 times 12. What's that give you? 144. Then you take it times 12 to the third power, and that's where you get 144,000. Did I do my math correctly? I'm not, I'm not good with math. So it'd be 10 times 10 times 10. 144,000. That's how you get it. So the, to the third is what com completeness, but then three times complete? Yeah, complete, complete, complete. And what are the three completes? Well, it's just, it's just a way of emphasizing the completeness. So the 144,000 represent God's complete, complete, complete church on the earth, which is made up of millions of people. So when the Jehovah's Witnesses come knocking on your door, be prepared. If you let them in, you need to be prepared. They will tell you that that's a literal number and that only 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses have gone to heaven. And of course, they'll say, we're not part of that because, you know, there's millions of JWs all over the world. And so when they say, well, we're not, we're not going to go to heaven. We'll live forever on earth. But be prepared. That's what they'll teach you. But that's not true. Yes? But, but if you go past that number and you look at, sure, and I were talking about, but who is actually in heaven? The myriad of, of the people with the, I mean, that's beyond counting of a yeah, we had that in Revelation 4 and 5, didn't we? And, yeah. and then 7 also talks about who's actually praising God. It's not just the 144,000 owners. It's the people actually in heaven. That's right. Yeah. So I hope, that, I hope that's clear. Again, the numbers in, the, in Revelation are symbolic. Because Revelation is what kind of literature? It's this kind of literature. Apocalyptic literature. It uses symbols. Okay. If you don't know, look this up on Google. It'll tell you more. It uses symbols. So, for example, beasts in the book of Revelation. A beast that comes from the sea. A beast that comes from the earth. Well, what? Are these literal beasts? You know? No, they're not. They represent something. Kingdoms and churches. Okay. More on that when we get to it. That's going to really blow your mind. Any other questions? Yes. Seven, are these are angels talking to John now. And it says here, and, and I heard the number, but it says servants of our God. So it's like the angels are talking now to John, not Christ or uh, the Lamb. Okay. They, they like take over for some over now. Now I will simply point this out for the sake of uh, piquing your interest. Look again at Revelation 7 2. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east having a seal of the living God, and he called out in a loud voice to the four angels. Now, many, many commentators believe that this angel is Jesus himself. Now, why would they say such a thing? Well, a number of reasons for the sake of time, I'll mention this. In the Old Testament, you remember, 
there is many times described an angel of the Lord, right? And the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament talks and acts like who? God himself. So that could very well be the case here. Okay? Just keep that in mind. Some scholars actually believe that. They're probably right. Because he's not given a seal. He's got it. He possesses it like we have it pictured in Revelation 5. He is the only one who can open up the seals. Now he's got it. Which could very well be Christ himself. Now, was there another point you were making? Well, I'm just saying that it seems that all the, the angels are starting to take over now to tell John what's going to happen. Yes. And Jesus is now kind of like letting them do it now. Yes. And this this is the other point. So when you when all when you when we're dealing with actual created angels here, uh, participating in doing this, they are acting for the for God, for the Father and the Lamb, just like all the rest of the Bible. When God sends an angel, they they preach, right? Like at the empty tomb. You're looking for Jesus? He's not here. He rose just like he said. They're always preaching. And that's the point here. Anything else? All right, let's keep going. So that's the church on earth. They will be able to stand on the last day. Now it's described, not the church on earth, but now the church in heaven. Starting at verse 9. Then John looks... And before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And that language is from Daniel. That's huge from Daniel. Standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Now I have, I, so since I said that, I better finish that thought. This phrase, standing before this great multitude that nobody can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. This comes from Daniel, this language, and it is to make a point. These people that are described here in Revelation 7, they stand before who? The Lamb, and they're going to worship the Lamb, Jesus. In the book of Daniel, this same phraseology is used for the unbelievers who worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol. Remember when the orchestra plays? They were supposed to fall down and worship the, the image of gold. And the same language is used. So from Daniel, let me just paraphrase, when the orchestra would play, it says in Daniel, everyone from every nation, tribe, people, language would then fall down and worship. Now the opposite is happening. I hope that makes sense. Again, this is to emphasize, folks, what I've been trying to teach you. There, one thing, if you get one thing out of this class in the study of Revelation, I hope it's this. Jesus alone is Lord. Worship him only, even if it costs you everything. Like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, like Daniel, or like Antipas, who we read about earlier in Revelation 1, 2, and 3, who lost his life for worshiping Jesus and not the emperor. They're before the throne in front of the Lamb wearing white robes. This is a reference to, to faith in Christ and also baptism. For example, Galatians 3, verse 27. I'll just do it by memory. You can write it down and look it up later. But Galatians 3, verse 27 says, As many as you who have been baptized into Christ have now clothed yourself with Christ. So all of us who are baptized now wear a coat. And what is the coat? It's the Lord Jesus Christ. So when God the Father looks at you, Alicia, he doesn't see Alicia the sinner. He sees Alicia clothed and robed with his son, Jesus Christ. 
and then he's going to treat you differently, you see. Outside of Christ or in Christ? Big difference. Okay? So the white robes would represent believing in Jesus and being robed with him in holy baptism. And it's white symbolizing what? Purity. Not the purity that you've earned, but rather the purity and the holiness that Jesus gives you with his divine and saving name in baptism. Or another way to say it is 1 John 1. The blood of Jesus cleanses or purifies from, purifies, cleanses from all sin. When you're cleansed and you're purified by the blood of Jesus, guess what kind of robe you wear? It's white. Make sense? Okay, let's keep going. Holding palm branches. Why palm branches in their hand? What's that sound like in the Bible? Palm Sunday. That's right. But this same crowd who hailed Jesus as the Messiah later do what? Crucify him. But when they waved the palm branches and put the palm branches down on Palm Sunday, what did they mean by that? Here's the Messiah. He's going to win the victory for us. Palm branches, victorious. So now palm branches here. White robes, palm branches, victory. Victory. The king has won. They cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, that be God the Father, and to the Lamb. Quickly, I have to emphasize this. If you're saved, who is totally responsible for your salvation? What, what does the text say? Let me, let me, you tell, I'm going to read it differently. You tell me if it's true. Salvation belongs to God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb and Brent Kuhlman who on August 11th, 1983 gave his life to Jesus. That's right, that's wrong. I don't do the salvation verbs in any way, shape, or form. Only God does it. Now, brothers and sisters, this is huge because, again, I say this for a reason. Because if you, if, you, if you, in any way, shape, or form, think that you contribute to your salvation in any way, you now, at the best, simply diminish this or deny it at worst. So I tell you the true story like I told the kids this past Wednesday. I, I, I grew up white trash, redneck, Wyoming kid. Okay? That, that's who I am. You know it because of how I teach and preach. And all. I'm white trash, redneck. Okay? So I, I dated in high school a beautiful blonde girl. wasn't Robin. Her name was Tony. Tony and her sister Terry and her parents were constantly saying, Brent, you're not saved. Now, they weren't Lutheran. And they kept telling me over and over and over, Brent, you're not saved. And you, what do you think I, how I responded to that? You know how I responded as white trash redneck. You want to I am saved. I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He promises that anyone who believes in him is saved. And I'd quote the Bible. And they'd say, well, that's not enough, Brent. Really? I'd say, really? That's not enough. Jesus says this. So to, to make the long story short, these Christians, well-meaning, well-intended, wanted me to do something to get saved. I had to do something. They would never deny that Jesus died and rose again. They'd never deny that. But I had to do something else. This wasn't enough. Now, they wouldn't say that categorically, but when they would say, yeah, we believe this, but, Brent, now you need to do something. Now, here's how it went. And I quote, Brent, you need to give your life and your heart to Jesus, and then you'll be saved. How do you think I responded to that? I said, so I'm, I'm the Savior now, huh? 
Oh, no, 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 you're not. Jesus is. Yeah, but you just said, I have to do something or I'm not saved. So I'm now the Savior, and you've just taken Jesus out of the driver's seat. Am I, am I making sense? See, we live in a culture in, this, in America where almost all Protestants teach this falsehood. They won't deny this, but it's not quite enough. You need to do something. And until you do something, you ain't saved. And that's not an exaggeration. You test me out on it. That's why salvation doesn't belong to me in any way, shape, or form, but rather to God, the Father, and the Lamb. Verse 11, all the angels are standing around the throne, around the elders, and the four living creatures. They fall down on their faces before the throne, and they worship God. Again, same thing that we had in Revelation 5, same thing we had in Revelation 4. Again, I repeat, tongue-in-cheek, it's a bad joke, sorry. But if you're an LCMSer who doesn't like to come to church, you're not going to want to go to heaven. Because what's heaven going to be about? Worship. 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 Yeah, thank you for the reminder. And now finally, count with me. They say amen. That's the greatest word of worship. Amen. Because amen means truth. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Truth. Amen. And now count with me. Praise, glory, wisdom, thanks, honor, Power, strength. How many you got? Seven. seven. Number seven is huge in Revelation. Seven trumpets. Seven seals. Seven bowls. Seven churches. Seven golden lampstands. Seven is huge. This means perfect, perfect worship. That's what goes on in heaven. And finally then, I know I said it, but this, this is it. So again, when you come to church on Sunday morning, you are rehearsing for what? For your eternal praise and worship of the triune God. For example, this is the feast of victory for our God, alleluia. And then count the words right here from Revelation. We sing them. You're rehearsing for your forevermore in heaven. So seriously, if you know people who don't like to come to church and worship, you need to pull them back in. Because what they're doing by absenting themselves from church... They are rehearsing for something else. What are they rehearsing for? And don't misunderstand when I say this. I'm not saying that you will be saved if you come to church. And I'm not saying that you will go to hell if you don't go to church. But what I am saying is this. I am saying that when you come to church, you're rehearsing for something. And if you don't come to church, you're rehearsing for something else. And that's my fear. Are you picking up what I'm throwing down? So what's the rehearsing if you don't come? What are you rehearsing for? Every Sunday when you don't come. You're rehearsing for what? For hell. That, for being separate from God forever. Now again, I have to, I didn't say you have to come to church to be saved, and I didn't say missing church will send you to hell. But this is, this is a reality that I fear. Okay. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is what saves you, and you have many immature Christians who simply won't take the opportunity to worship. Okay. However, if we're dealing with not immature Christians, but we're talking about people who simply refuse, that's where my fear comes in. So, any, any final questions or comments on that? Holy smokes. I better run for the woodshed. All right, let's pray the Lord's Prayer.